You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. I'm speaking with Dick Lupoff at SFNSF. Thank you for joining me, Dick. Tell us about your early days in the computer business. Well, in 1958, right, I had gone from college to the Army to Remington, what was then Remington Rand Univac, which has long since disappeared in a series of corporate mergers. But anyway, I was taking a programming course. And the way we did, we worked, we worked in a classroom, and you just wrote all of your coding on sheets of paper, and it went off into a black hole somewhere, and the next day you got a printout on your desk when you arrived. That's how we debugged. Anyway, one day the teacher comes in and he says, would you like to see the computer? None of us had ever actually seen a computer. And everybody said, yes. He says, all right, I'll try and get us into the computer room, which was Univac 1. It occupied an entire floor of an office building, and in the middle of the floor was something that looked like a small gray barn with a door on the side. And the instructor says, well, come on in. And he opens the door, and we walk inside, and he closes the door behind us, and he says, this is the memory. We're standing inside it. This machine can can remember a thousand words at a time. And everybody said, ooh, Univac 2 had 2,000 words of memory. And it's amazing. Yeah, what you were saying about about your laptop, you, you have more computing power on your wristwatch than we had in Univac 1. But it was considered a technological marvel of the era. And it still is for its time. Now, now, Dick, tell me about your latest book. What, what do we have coming up? The last thing I saw was Zero, your, the collection of your famous uh, uh, fanzine essays. Oh, that's been a while. I have a, uh, just putting together the second volume of a three-decker short story collection called Terrors, Visions, Dreams. Terrors is out. Visions is just about ready to roll. Dreams will be in in another year or so. Plus, I've also just started work on the eighth and final Hobart Lindsay Marvia Plum novel. It's been a while. I planned it as eight books. I wrote seven. I ran into a wall. It was 1996. And about a month ago, I figured out what I was doing wrong. I said, oh, now I know how to write this book. And, And now it's rolling. Yeah. That's a real testament to persistence. Now, out there on the table, too, I saw another uh, Lovecraft mystery. Uh, tell us about writing these Lovecraft mysteries. It must involve a fair amount of research. It involves a lot of research, and it's a lot of fun. Um, when I did my first big book about Lovecraft, I went to Providence, Rhode Island, and walked around, saw a lot of sites where he had been himself. Went to the Brown University Library, where they showed me some of his papers and artifacts. And... Um, Spent a lot of time reading newspapers from the 1920s, from the 1920s, Providence Journal, Providence Bulletin, and also the New York Times, and just immersed myself in it. I would come home, <coughs> excuse me, I would come home, and our children were small then, and each of them had his or her own interests, and they would say, "Well, Dad, what happened on August 15th, 1927?" And I would tell. One son, the baseball news, and another son, the politics. My daughter wanted to know what's going on in the world of showbiz, and I would tell, well, uh, Clayton Jackson and Durante opened at Texas Guinan's nightclub, 
Humphrey Bogart is doing a, a song and dance act on Broadway. He wasn't very good at it. Uh, it was fascinating, just just living in another era. Now, uh, you, you brought back Lovecraft for a second adventure. Uh, what made you decide to do that? Well, I, don't, I think that's a mistake. Uh, the book that I wrote in 1976 was called Marblehead. It was a very long book, 160,000 words. This is to say a typical novel is, is about half that length. And it got caught up in a just horrendous tangle involving my agent, my editor, publisher, in legal problems. It was just awful. Uh, and the manuscript even disappeared. So I went all the way back to my original outline and rewrote a sort of bowdlerized half-length version of the book, which was published called Lovecraft's Book. Well received by critics, and, uh, and it sold pretty well. But I always, you know, that first book was, was the book in my heart. And only about two years ago, a little longer than that, 2006, I was surfing the internet and I discovered that a dealer had that lost manuscript and was offering it for sale. How he got it, we won't go into. It's an ugly story. Um, but I sent him, I, I talked to a lawyer about it and we sent him a rather harsh letter and I got the manuscript back and it has now been published. He got brilliant reviews. This was the 1976 book. It was finally published in 2006. As a writer, you've had uh, an incredibly long career, and when you were talking about that mystery, coming back to that after 13 years, that requires just an amazing amount of persistence. Could, could you talk about the, just achieving that persistence of vision? Well, <laughs> I don't, you're, you're being too kind. It's, um, give, give credit to my creditors, right? The bills keep coming whether I write books or not, so I just better write books. Uh, well, talk about... Um, when you are writing like a, a series like this, the, your your mystery series, which I, I I've read some of those and I really enjoy them, they're really fine. D those characters must like be your neighbors or something. Well, some people think that Hobart Lindsay is is really me in a clever plastic disguise. This is not true. He's a rather different person from me. Uh, his his cohort in throughout the series, Marvia Plum is based on, on people, but she is an, an amalgam of three good friends of mine. One was a woman that I knew when I was in the Army. Uh, one was a woman that I worked with in the computer industry. And the third was a, a woman that I worked with for another employer. Uh, there are qualities. She looks rather like one, and she talks rather like another, and she thinks rather like the other. And They all came together and made Marvia Plum. One thing I, I, I like about those books is they do have a, a flavor of the Bay Area. Could you talk about the Bay Area as a place to, to write about? It's pretty nice to, to they're pretty friendly for that, isn't it? It is very friendly. It's, it's a remarkably varied area. You've got most obviously the microclimates, you have the big city environment, you have the rural environment, you have suburbia. It's, it's all here, plus the, the sheer physical geography. I mean, the bay, the hills, the bridges. It's a very picturesque and popular place. Writers tend to love it. Um, what are you working on right now, this moment, and what are you going to be reading tonight? Uh, tonight I'm going to read a brand new story called T-Shirts, uh, which is 
it, it, it's completely autobiographical, which is to say every person in it, every incident in it are real. However, they are sliced and diced and shuffled and twisted and shaped and colored so that it's not autobiographical at the same time that it is autobiographical. Well, that sounds like a, a lot of sleight of hand. When you write these kind of semi-autobiographical, autobiographical stories, do you get feedback from the people you put in them? I mean, for example, the, the three models for, for Marvia Plum, uh, do, do they say, hey, that's me? Uh, unfortunately, I've lost touch with all three of them over the years. But there was one book, uh, a book, one of the novels in the series called The Radio Red Killer, which is set at a radio station in Berkeley called KRED, stands for Keep Radio Educational and Democratic. It's clearly based on KPFA, where I have worked on and off for many years. Um, everybody in the station who read the book recognized all the characters with one exception. The station manager said, I recognize that person whom you killed in the book. <coughs> and he, I'm only sorry that you didn't make me the murderer. <laughs> On the other hand, the only person who said, I, I don't know who that is, was the person who it was. He did not recognize himself, and I'm not going to tell him. <laughs> I've been speaking with Dick Lupoff. His forthcoming book is... Uh, Visions is the next one up, and then the next novel will be The Green Cat Killer. Thank you for joining me, Dick. My pleasure. Good to see you again, Rick. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.